How you see shapes what you see. How you see things in life will shape how you see, right? It will shape it. Please turn with me in your Bibles. I hope everyone brought your Bibles today. We're going to pick on you a little bit here. Turn on to Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 through 23. We are going to dive into the Word. We're going to pick up the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is up there with the crowd. Hopefully you imagine yourself with them sitting on the mountain, listening to what he has to say, because what he has to say is very important. We're going to pick up today in the passage of Scripture where Jesus was out to fix what the people see. He was out to fix what the crowd saw. Their vision was blurry. It was producing a skewed perspective of Heavenly Father. It had to be addressed. It's interesting, when you read through all of Matthew chapter 6, really, uh, it goes into a string of thought that at first glance would appear very disjointed, a lot of just like a mixed bag of themes, if you will. And so there's this idea, on one hand, we're going to talk about where our treasure is, there our heart is going to be, and on the other hand, we're going to talk about don't worry, you really shouldn't worry. But connecting those two ideas is this idea that the lamp of the body is the eye. And it all seems a little bit weird until you dig into it to really understand. So here we are, Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. We're going to get right into it. It says, now, if therefore the eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Give me some of that, right? But if your eye is what? No, yeah. No, we said good. If your eye is bad, if your eye is bad, your whole body is going to be full of darkness, this idea of the good eye and the bad eye was a very popular conversation among Jewish culture. Talked about it all the time. In fact, the good eye, or ayin tovah, as it was pronounced, right? Generally, if you see through this eye, the good eye, then you see all the goodness in creation. You see abundance when you look out there. You see everything, the world around you is generally, generally good. Seeing the world in a healthy light, right? So that's the good eye, ayin tovah. The bad eye is ayin ra'ah. Doesn't it kind of, it sounds hideous, doesn't it? It sounds like a, a bad character in a Disney movie, ra'ah. Unhealthy, bad. It implies like there's a closed off nature to your life. That's the image I get of somebody who's ayin ra'ah, just that closed fist, hands, arms crossing your body, right? Ra'ah. But let's, let's, at the very beginning here, let's, let's clarify. Ayin Ra'ah is not the same as the exercise of foresight. Foresight says there's a storm coming. And when the storm is coming, the sailor will take in the sail on his boat. The person who has the house on the shore is going to go ahead and batten up the windows to make sure that they don't get torn up, right? That's foresight. That's wisdom. That's discernment. That's not the same as the exercise of, of what? The exercise of foreboding. Foreboding, you know, it's, it's a little bit like uh, what Frank Borum says in his book. He says, look, he says anxiety, worry, foreboding. It's a little bit like telescoping tomorrow's problems into today. You know, it's a little bit like dwelling on the tomorrow so much. Yeah. You know, oh, the storm might come. 
Something might happen to me. And all of a sudden, worry begins to enter into the picture. Foreboding enters into the picture. We don't want ayin ra'ah. But so that illustrates for us today to kind of start us out in our message on worry that how we see things shapes what we see. It really does. So this is a foundation. Let's move on. Skip through Matthew chapter 66, verse 25. You didn't know that Matthew had 60 chapters, did you? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. We're going to pick up here together, guys. All right, here we go. Everybody there say, yeah. yeah. Therefore, I say to you, that's you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor the gather into barns that your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You should say amen right there. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? We've tried, right? When I was growing up, I tried. I tried to grow by praying. It didn't work. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these, right? If God clothes the grass of the field, today's here, tomorrow's thrown into the fire or the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't worry, saying, what are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? What are you going to wear? For after all these things, Gentiles... Seek, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You don't need all these things. He already knows. Seek first the kingdom of God, right? His righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow is enough worry of itself. Sufficient is this day for its own trouble. Amen? This is God's word. It's going to lead us today. How many of you know Jesus did not want the people to worry? He didn't want the people to be anxious. It affects us all very deeply, and he knew that. It's interesting. Jesus had uh, an attentive crowd, did he not? I mean, the crowd was there. They're on the mountain. They're not going to go anywhere else. They're sitting down and listening to him. And while he has them, their full and undivided attention, he launches into this conversation about worry. And so if this is what he's going to choose to bring to our attention today. We would do well to sit up and take notice, okay? So today, we're going to make three observations. Why did Jesus spend critical time with the crowds talking about worry? And the first thing that we notice is that worry just doesn't see yourself rightly. Worry doesn't see yourself rightly. Jesus pauses from his teaching to pose a very personal question to the crowd. He says, are you not of more value than they? Do you think he paused after making that statement to the crowd? Maybe he let that question hang in the air. I've wrestled with that question. Have you ever wrestled with the question of, am I valuable? Am I valuable? Do I have any Thing to really offer in life. And it's an important question for us to navigate because in our culture, we can often move from mountaintop esteem, right? To the depths of depression from one moment to the next. Our phones, you know, we get notifications all the time. So one moment we're, you know, we get great news, it speaks to our value and who we are. And the very next, you can get like a text from your boss saying, I need to evaluate, you know, come on in, it's time. You know, I mean, it's, so our value is always under attack in our culture. In fact, a lot of people wrestle with value, and it comes out in the way they shop for things. 
It comes out in the way they do their work. I'm going to work 100 hours a week, bless God, and I've got to work, work, work. I'm not going to take any vacation. Why? Because that's how they derive value for their lives. I'm only as good as my last evaluation or my last effort, right? Well, promotion, maybe it's a relationship. I'm going to find value. I can't be alone in my life because I don't see value in who I am. I have to be in a relationship so that others can ascribe value to my life. And so a lot of times we wrestle with that. You know, we got to be in another relationship or maybe it's the next car or house that you buy. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be better because, hey, we wrestle with value, right? In our lives, there's a lot of striving to attain value in who we are. We don't see it inherently. In other words, we live by the theme, I must plow to please. A lot of striving. The message of this culture doesn't help us at all. It feeds that striving. Like back in 1930, to illustrate this idea, one advertising trade journal had the guts to make this quote public in a journal, right? For everybody to read. They declared that making people unhappy is actually their goal. Advertising, it helps to keep the masses dissatisfied with their mode of life, discontented with the ugly things around them, satisfied customers are not as profitable as discontented ones. So they may make it their mission. Our culture makes it their mission to look at you and declare that you don't have value unless Jesus is aware that the people sitting in front of him made a living striving to obtain value. The blurred vision, the ayin ra'ah, I don't know, you know, the chips away at God's purpose over each and every one of us. It reminds them, he reminds them of their value. It's very interesting. And we cannot underestimate the importance of this moment because standing right in front of the crowd is the very example of love. It's the very example of what the care package that God the Father sent to send love and to ascribe value. Standing in front of them, look, hey, no errand boy could send the message that Jesus sent. No angel from heaven could do that. No courier could serve as a substitute. But standing in front of them was Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave what? He gave his son. And there in that moment is the very representation of the Father's love and ascribing value to everyone that was standing there, sitting there watching, just listening to Jesus. Loved him so much. Essentially, looking at them and saying, are you not more valuable? And I want you today to understand you are valuable. God has an amazing purpose for your life. In 2017, Christy and I were going through the motions kind of to celebrate Thanksgiving that year. We were in our car driving from San Antonio to Dallas to be with family. You know, kids are in the back and we're just, we're just driving. But uh, Thanksgiving had a little bit of a different tone for us that year. Christy's body was miscarrying one of our children. And it was a very sad time for us. And there was tears, a lot of silence in the car. And, and there was moments where really upset. I mean, I mean, moments like that, when you feel like the world's picking on you, you can feel really small and insignificant, can't you? But honestly, the question that hung in the air was, 
do I have value? God, do you really see me in this moment? And so it was a question that we began to wrestle with. And of course, the season with Thanksgiving, and we're, we're trying to be thankful for all that we have. But in the middle of all of it, all we could focus on was what we didn't have. What we had been expecting, what we had been anticipating, the object of our joy and our affection. But yet here we are driving. And very quickly, pondering turned into pity. And then at one moment, I, I looked up into the rearview mirror. And in the rearview mirror, I saw my kids. I saw my boys in the back seat. I saw Nathaniel just sitting there chilling, playing with Legos or something. I don't know. You know how they are. And then, and then next to Nathaniel, I saw my other son, Caleb. And Caleb is a miracle. After we had Nate, the doctor said, that's it. She's done. She can't have any more. We tried for six years. We couldn't have any more children. And finally, we just went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and we said, hey, look, we, we believe we've got it, but we're standing on the promise that we're going to, and Caleb finally comes. And so here I am, really, I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated in the moment because my, my, my wife is miscarrying. I see all the pain, and I see all the tears, and I see all the heartache, but in the very same breath, I glance up in the rearview mirror, and I see the miracles in my back seat. And it reminded me in the moment that sometimes we would do well to look in the rearview mirror when we're mired with the stuff of life so that we can see the trail of God's faithfulness. Sometimes you can't see it until you look behind you. And I look behind me and I see my sons. And I'm grateful and I'm thankful for God's faithfulness. But in that moment, I was not wrestling with my value. I did not feel insignificant, but I knew in that moment that God knows me, God sees me, and God wants me to know that I have value because how you see things in life shapes what you see. It's a constant battle to have a good eye. The second thing he wants us to see, he wanted that crowd to see, was that worry doesn't see the Father rightly. Worry just does not see the Father rightly. In this small passage of Scripture, we see Jesus refer to God twice as Heavenly Father. Once in the beginning, when he says, hey, he provided for the birds of the air, he's going to care for you. And once at the end, when he says, look, you know, uh, he knows what you need before you ask of him. I thought it interesting that he starts his conversation with don't worry about Father, he ends it by talking about Father. And I, I think there was a reason for that. Anytime something's repeated in Scripture, we should really sit up. We should lean in a little bit and take notice. You know, Jesus doesn't want Heavenly Father to get lost in the message, does he? Heavenly Father is the purpose. Heavenly Father is the point. It's the main idea. He's the beginning and the end of the message. We've got to learn and understand our Heavenly Father. A few weeks ago, I found myself struggling with this idea. I was pulling up to the church. It was a, a family night. So we were all getting together to hang out and spend some time. It was great. We hadn't seen each other in such a long time. It was, it was needed. And I'm pulling up a little bit early because I'm just going to try to help and get, get some things in place. And I get a call from my mom. So my, my mom, she starts off. She says, Matt, it's not happening the way we thought it would happen. And she's weeping. Bring you a little bit into the story. 15 years ago, my, my father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And so every year, the disease takes, takes on a new 
form or part in his body. He feels it differently every single year. And so I was in the process of helping my parents move from Dallas to San Antonio. And this was the time, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had decided, look, you're going to work with Jeremy and my brother. You're going to pack up the house and kind of get it all ready for me. And then I'm going to fly up and get the truck and we're going to pack it and we're going to move. And so when I get the call from my mom and she starts off by saying, it's not happening the way we thought it would. And she's weeping. She's just crying. She's overwhelmed. Your father, he's not, he's not having a good week. He can't get up from his chair. He's gotten up several times and he's fallen down. We've had to pick him up and put him. He's become the sole focus of our attention this week. We haven't gotten to any of the moving, any of the packing. We haven't gotten to any of it. And she's in the middle of telling me this. She's weeping. She's crying. We're trying desperately to understand what's happening. And at the same time, alarms start going off in my car. How many of you, you can't keep a conversation going and something like that. And so I was like, I was like, mom, I am so sorry I can't hear. She's like, what is that noise? And I was like, I'm sorry, mom, I can't, I, I, I can't hear you. And I, can't, I was driving the car, I couldn't do anything about it, and so it's just going off. And so I'm driving, and, and, and she's trying to tell me, and she's weeping, and all the time, all the while, my car's screaming at me, hey, you gotta throw some more money at me. So then expectations are there and, and expenses are there, and, and I'm just trying to have a conversation to find out what's going on with my dad. Well, then, so then I, I said, Mom, I got to call you back later. I get off the phone with her, and I get on the phone with my, my wife because the, you know, the, the, the alarm finally went off. And I get on the phone with her, and I'm talking to her, and all of a sudden the alarm starts going off again. She's like, I can't hear a word you're saying. It's like, baby, I, I think I'm going to have to go up. I think I'm going to have to help him move. I think I'm going to have to make all this happen, whatever, and I'm trying. And she's like, I can't hear a word. And at the same time, our children in the background, you know, they're like raptors at Jurassic Park, you know. It's like, foom. You know, their heads like this, they like sense that we're trying to have an adult conversation and it's like, ah, you know, chaos ensues. In the background, they start yelling at each other and and they start driving my wife crazy. She's like one hand trying to get them apart from each other. And then, you know, and then, you know, the alarm and all that. So it was just, it was ridiculous. But I get off the phone and I feel very anxious. You know, I know I'm supposed to be the authority on the subject because I'm teaching on worry, but man, that worry was full-fledged. What's happening with my dad? What's happening with my... But that was so frustrating for me is that, that one, those two conversations I was trying to have with my mom and my wife, I couldn't get in, a word in edgewise about my dad. I, could, I couldn't get one word in edgewise to understand what was going on with my father. And I pulled away from that moment as I'm contemplating this message today. It occurs to me The same thing is true in our lives, is it not? The same way the simplest of conversations regarding our heavenly father, they often get lost. They often get misunderstood among the weightiness of life, among that doctor's diagnosis, that fear, that uncertainty, and that doubt. It all weighs heavy on us to the point it can actually choke out any vision of heavenly father. Just like I couldn't get a word in about my father. I couldn't couldn't focus on my father. Here in the passage, Jesus refers to the birds as one way that the father has proven his ability to care and provide. But I mean, oh my goodness, couldn't couldn't Jesus have gone into the resume of heavenly father? I mean, he really could have. I mean, we had a whole Old Testament to, to dig into. I mean, he could have gotten into the idea that we had Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve. And so we know that, you know, that God put Adam in the garden, but it wasn't good enough because he needed a helper. Didn't want her to be alone, so he gave him Eve, right? cared for him. Give him all the trees of the garden. Here, eat from all this. Give him the food. The animals are yours, whatever. He gave him everything he needed to survive. 
Noah, you know, hey, I'm going to flood the earth. It's, it's evil, but don't want to let you go, Noah. You're a righteous man. You love the Lord, and you and your whole family. Here's a document. Here, here design the boat, you know. Rescue you and your family. He's got a history of being a father who takes care of his kids, right? Consider Joseph, where Joseph felt like he had been forgotten. The brother that was cast into the pit, right? And later sold into slavery. He could have very well, and I'm sure he did. Oh, God has forgotten me. What about those dreams I had, God? What about all of those? Were those just for nothing? Do you really see my circumstance, Father? He was, wasn't he? He watched him all the way from the pit to his position in power in the palace. He did. I don't know about Moses. I mean, we could go on and on, but what about Moses? You know, his birth as a baby, very unique circumstances. All the Hebrew babies were being killed and slaughtered, but this baby's delivered. God intervenes with the midwives. The midwives see that the Lord is all over this one, and they say, we're going to protect him. We're going to hide him. Winds up being the deliverer of the children of Israel. Even when the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, they couldn't get their act together. God sends them manna from heaven for food. He pours water from a rock, all to take care of his kids. I'm telling you, Jesus says, birds of the air, he takes care of them. But Jesus could have gone on and on and on and on because we need to see heavenly father. And how you see shapes what you see really does. So worry doesn't see yourself rightly. Worry doesn't see the Father rightly. But worry doesn't see others rightly. Worry doesn't see others. It just doesn't. You know, in verse 33, Jesus commands the crowd to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. And worry and anxiety, they keep us like this, right? Remember that image from the very beginning? We talked about this, you know, protection, prevention, you know, this inward focused and hands clenched, you know. Reminds me of a quote I came across in the book, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. The author makes the comment or quoted, miserliness. Doesn't that remind you of like a miser? Miserliness shuts a man off from his fellow man and from humanity itself. Isn't that true? It shuts a man off. It isolates him. It separates him. He no longer wants or has a desire to engage other people. In contrast to this whole idea, I participated in a ceremony not just about three weeks ago where they marched on stage one after another, after another, after another couples who dedicated 50 plus years of ministry their lives. Can you imagine 50 years of ministry? And I, I thought about that. I thought about that. I was like, what, what got them into ministry in the beginning? Was it worry? Was worry the motivation to get them into ministry? I can tell you that's probably not a great motivation. Was it worry that kept them in the ministry for 50 years? Probably not. No, they they were motivated by worry in the beginning and they weren't motivated by worry in the beginning or the end or all of it. They weren't. It wasn't for worry that they were in it this whole time, but for love and for obedience for others. Here at Gateway, I look around and I see what God is doing. 
I see all the churches that are being planted around us by individuals that have given up their Mondays, right? They give up their Mondays to train at Gateway School of Ministry. We're learning and we're growing together what it means to advance in planting communities of faith all over our city and across the world, you know, both here and there. And so we're doing it. But it's because of individuals who are giving up their Monday nights. They're giving up their claim to Sunday. They're here on Sunday. They're serving. You see them in the cafe. You see them in the kids' workers. You see them all over the place. They're helping with volunteers. They're helping in the parking lot. They're all over the place. They're learning. They're training, and they've committed their way to it. I look at all of our teams that are beginning to go on mission again. I look at our missionaries who, uh, who are locally here who have said, hey, look, we're going we're gonna to start going again. We're going to take seven trips here from Gateway over the next seven or eight weeks. I mean, we're going, we're going to areas I can't really talk about, a couple of them, right? We're also going to Egypt. We're going to Mexico. We're going to Los Angeles Dream Center. We're going to Atlanta, Georgia, where there's the highest concentration of refugees, international refugees living right there in Atlanta, Georgia. We're going to go. We're going to, we're going to minister. And I so love what I see happening with the teams, all made up of individuals like you who want to see others rightly. I know not everyone can go. I get that. I understand it. Not everyone can, can make the time for that. Not everyone's got the dollars to do that. I understand that. But let's not excuse the impact of one, maybe one family, one person, one individual that says yes to Jesus. And this simply begins to volunteer. This simply begins to love and to encourage. You know, maybe encourage their small group, participate in a small group, you know, maybe commits their family, you know, to the cause of Christ and to others. So let's not underestimate the husband that says, our family's gonna seek first the kingdom of God. Let's not underestimate the wife that says, our family is gonna seek first the kingdom of God. Or the, or the teenager that says, hey, I'm gonna seek first the kingdom of God. I'm gonna do difficult things for the kingdom of God. It reminds me of a man named Larry Click. Dear friend to me, I, I know the name won't mean much to you, but he made all the difference to me in my life. He was saved at a church plant some 40 years ago. He walked into a brand new startup church and he gave his heart to the Lord there in that church plant. And uh, I'll never forget. It was like something literally clicked on the inside of him, right? Something changed on the inside of him. And he committed his way to the Lord from the very beginning to seek first the kingdom of God, others, right? The very next week, he He's in church again, but he insisted on volunteering. He didn't know much about the deal, but he says, there's a place I can serve and smoke a cigarette at the same time. And they said, yeah, I serve out in the parking lot. And so they put him to work parking cars. And you know what? He showed up parking cars. And the next week, he comes again. You find him serving somewhere else in the cafe, doling out coffee to people. He's, he's, he's walking up and down. He, he, he has a voice, right? So he starts singing in quartets. He's singing in choirs. He's singing in musicals that the church puts on. He's, he's in every play, and, and soon he's like running the soundboard. He becomes an elder in the church, an example, a pillar. His son-in-law was my youth pastor, you know? That's why he meant so much to me, and he would have the youth come over to his house. He would have the corridors. He would invite them over. He invested in me personally to get me on the mission field a couple of times in my journey. He sent me to youth camp a couple of times. He sent a ton of youth to youth camp. Odd jobs. He gave out odd jobs all over the place to get people money. He invested in bake sales and car washes. Come on, somebody. He did not need to wash his car that many times. 
this vision of him down at the altars, just, just praying for people. Just believing that God would move in young people. That God would move in people's lives. He was a small group leader. He dedicated a whole room of his house to paper plates and napkins and cups. Come on, he was Costco dream. You know if you're a small group leader, right? People over his house. It was about four years ago, he developed mesothelioma, lung cancer. And uh, it's a season that most people looked at him and said, look, Larry, you've, you've served well. You've been faithful. Stay home, rest, recover. Get it, right? But he wouldn't. Instead, we get a vision of Larry marching up and down the halls, his oxygen tank in him, just towing it, right? Just towing his oxygen tank. He had that thing over his mouth, but he would not be deterred. One of the songs that came out during the time he was wrestling with this lung cancer was, and you guys have heard it, right? It's your breath in my lungs. And he tells my wife one day, she's having a talk with him, and, you know, Larry, how you doing? You know, well, it's the Lord's breath in my lungs. He put his breath in me from the very beginning, and that's how I'm here today. And, and it's his breath that will disappear from my lungs when he chooses to take me. But until he takes me, I'm going to keep walking these halls. I'm going to keep praying for people in the altars. I'm going to keep pouring my pastor his cup of coffee. I'm going to keep having my small group. I'm going to keep ministering to the people that are in my life. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and others. And I wonder here today, where are all the Larry clicks? I want to challenge you. The pandemic, oh my goodness. Nobody could have anticipated that. And it took so many of us out, right? You know, and that, you know, hey, we're going to take care of family. We're going to take wisdom, right? No doubt wisdom. We're going to take care of our families. And we're going to do what we're being encouraged to do. It's important. But man, so many have come to us and have said, you know what? I have to confess. The pandemic got me out of some healthy family rhythms. I found myself putting faith on shelf, church to the side, mission to the curb. Maybe that's you. Is that you? I, I don't know. Is that you watching? I, I don't know. But so many have approached us and said, look, there was a healthiness about all of this in the beginning. It all made sense in the beginning, but, but now I'm having a hard time getting myself back into a rhythm. And to those of you, that's you, I would say, come back. We need you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Come on, it's time to get back. I just get a vision of Larry Click towing that oxygen tank behind him. How many more Larry Clicks? How many more Larry Clicks do we have out there? How many more? I mean, I look at Larry and what he did for me. I am who I am today because someone like Larry invested in me. And I wonder today, who's going to benefit from your life? Who's going to benefit from your life? But see others. Really see others. Jesus tempted the impossible with the crowd there that day. He really did. I mean, they're, they're sitting in front of him. Don't worry. Worry doesn't see yourself rightly. Worry doesn't see the Father rightly. Worry 
does not see others rightly either. We can't do it like this. We gotta be open. It's time to open up again. It really is. It's time to open it up again. And I hope, I hope you'll come back. Will you come back? Come on. In Jesus' name, come back. Come on. We need you. All right. Here's what I'd like to do. Everyone standing in this place. Everyone from the left to the right, standing, please, in this place. I really felt like the Lord wanted to set up a moment for us to pray. To pray for one another. How many of you know the scripture says those who are sick should be prayed for? They should, we should lay hands on them, right? Those of you that feel comfortable with that, come on, let's do it. So like, worry is a big deal. Anxiety is a big deal. And there's a lot of stuff going on out there that would keep us bent in a place of worry. Fear, doctor's diagnosis, disease, prodigal son, child, economy, downturn, whatever it is that you're wrestling with today, the Holy Spirit wants to minister to you. I believe that with all of my heart. Will you pray with me, Jesus, right now? I pray that you would minister to my friends. From the left to the right, Lord God, here today, I pray, Lord Holy Spirit, that you would flood this place. I pray, Lord God, that we would see you like we've never seen you before. I pray that we would see the Father, the care, the love, the value that you have for each and every one of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. I want to invite the small group leaders to come down. And I'm going to uh, also ask the worship team just to keep singing. They're going to sing a song here for us today. What I would like to do is invite those who would say, you know what, I need prayer. I need prayer. And you're willing willing to admit it. Would you come down? Would you begin to come down right now? Even as they're beginning to play, I want to pull on you a little bit. Those of you who'd say, hey, I could use my faith strengthened. Or I want, to ser- I want this to serve as a dedication moment for me in my life. From this moment forward, I'm going to be different. From this moment forward, I'm going to move on. From this moment forward, I dedicate the next season of my life to this or to that. You know, whatever it is for you, I want to invite you to come down. Maybe you have great fear in your life. You're wrestling with something. Do it with someone else. Don't try to handle the battle on your own, but really do it with someone else. Pray alongside someone else. Invite them into your situation and let them pray for you in Jesus' name. As they sing, I want to invite you to come and receive prayer.